Welcome to the Interlocutor Interviews podcast. I'm Tyler Nestler, the founder of Interlocutor Magazine. And today I have with me the French-American artist, Miles Hyman, who currently has a solo show titled Secret Lives at Philippe Le Bon Gallery in New York. So welcome, Miles. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, happy to have you here. Um, well, let's start off by getting into your background a little bit. Um, so your work has been described as informed by mid-century American realism, European symbolism, uh, film noir. Um, what is it about these elements in particular that inspire your works, especially film noir? Uh, how were you originally exposed to that genre of film and what other types of media served as real early inspirations for your style? Yeah. I- interestingly, I, I, uh, I was at Wesleyan where I sort of a, was a, one of those classic bad students who, who dabbles in everything, um, literature, art, and, and cinema. So um, I sort of had the beginnings of what would then become my career already taking shape uh, at my years in university. But when I got to France, because um, I, I went right from Wesley into the School of Fine Arts in Paris, hmm. and I, I, I was interested to see that there was a whole new perspective on on um, on American culture seen from here, from France, France being uh, very, very attuned to and attentive to and enthusiastic about uh, uh, many aspects of American culture, not all aspects <laughs> American culture, yeah. but you know, I discovered uh, a whole a whole bunch of authors, and uh, uh, notably uh, like John Fante or, or um, Jim Thompson, uh, noir authors from the mid-century that were less known in the U.S. but just uh, adored over here in in France. And same thing for film noir, where um, mm-hmm. um, uh, directors like Anthony Mann, for instance, and some others uh, who I'd never heard of and who here were considered to be just masters of the genre. And and I'd learned a tremendous amount um, here uh, in France, looking back sort of on, on, on the culture that, that, that from which I had come so recently. And, and it was really kind of stimulating and fascinating to, to rediscover um, American culture through the eyes of another culture that I sort of adopted um, over here. Yeah, I can imagine. So you get a whole new lens on it, basically. Yeah. yeah. Sort of an unexpected objectivity about about what is kind of enthralling about American culture to to other people around the world. Yeah. Uh, at least that period of American culture. And so you studied drawing and printmaking um, at Wesleyan, right? With uh, is it David Shore? That's right. Yeah, David okay. Schultz, a teacher, particularly in printmaking, mm-hmm. also in art history. Okay, so that kind of got you going with the visual arts. It did. He was he was the first teacher, um, n- not the first good art teacher I had, but the first one who sort of took me aside and said, "You know, y- you can you can actually do this job. You can you can <laughs> if you choose to go down this path. You 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 know you have the means to to succeed as an artist." which no one had ever said to me. Um, and I, I, besides everything I learned in his class from a point of view of technique and, and, and uh, in lithography or, or, or etching, or also the, the, the sort of the art history aspect of the classes he gave where I discovered um, European symbolism. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I really, I really, um, the, the, those, 
those words coming from a teacher had a tre- tremendous amount of weight. And uh, I, I think from then on, it really propelled me forward toward a career that I felt I, 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 was, I really wanted to explore. Yeah, I know. I can imagine. So yeah, because it sounds like you were a little unfocused initially, not sure exactly yeah. what you wanted to do. And it sounds like he was really the impetus to kind of push you in that direction. He did. Just I, I, I continued to, to, you know, do a lot of things. I, I sort of had this Renaissance man philosophy <laughs> yeah. of what an artistic career could and should be. And uh, I continued in France to 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 sing in, in the, the the orchestra of Paris choir. I just to continue to do lots of different things uh, with the conviction that it was all going to sort of at some point gel into something that would become um, a sort of a consistent artistic voice. And, and oddly enough, I I can sort of pinpoint you know all those sort of distractions from what would eventually become <laughs> a, a career as a as a as an artist and painter. They all served a purpose, and, and I'm sort of from the music experience. I learned a lot about how to formulate a long, a sort of a a, a large scale artistic work like a graphic novel. Um, the way the way um, uh, you know in in an orchestral piece or a symphonic piece, a, a, a certain notes or certain certain elements are are have to come out for the for the for the work to become coherent. So right. a lot of that same discipline, a lot of the same structural questions come into play when you're dealing with a large group of paintings, for instance, or, or a graphic novel. So in a, in a funny way, it feels like all of the tools I sort of learn in those side alleys of my experiences yeah. came into play. Wow. Yeah. So it's going to multifaceted kind of like way that you absorbed all of this and then were able to incorporate it into your visual work. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. So the show that you have up right now at Philippe Le Bon, this is your second solo show there. Um, your first was back in 2021, was titled yeah. Narrative Images. And so how do you think this show, um, Secret Lives, differs thematically from Narrative Images? Uh, well, first of all, what does this title represent to you? I just um, I just finished the uh, graphic novel uh, that came out a few weeks ago here in France called La Vie Secrète des Écrivains, which means mm. um, The Secret Lives of Writers. Oh. Uh, written by a, a French author named Guillaume Musso, um, who got in touch during the first uh, lockdown here in France uh, and asked me if I'd be interested in in, um, in adapting his novel into a graphic novel. Uh, and as I was doing the graphic novel, I knew that the show for Philippe was coming up, and um, we just had that first uh, a successful show, uh, one that I think we were both really pleased with. And I wanted to bring some of the themes that we had started working with in that first show to, to something that would go a little bit further, sort of develop a lot of the ideas that I'd started to play with, with that first show and see, and see where would, they would lead me. Um, so as I was doing the, um, the book, uh, Secret Lives of Writers, I, I started to develop these, these new paintings uh, in sketch form started to paint sort of on on off days when I wasn't doing graphic novel pages. Uh, and um, the show kind of took form like that. And I, I decided to give it this this title of Secret Lives in reference to and sort of homage to um, the, the creative atmosphere that had been sort of uh, part of my life for the two, year, two years preceding it, between the two shows. Um, right. And, and uh, it felt like the title sort of brought those two those two bodies of work together. 
Interesting. Okay. Well, there's a strong sense of nostalgia in a lot of these works. And um, sometimes, you know, nostalgia gets kind of a bad rap, like it's too sentimental or whatever, or sappy. Or yeah. do you think those are potential pitfalls when you're kind of doing nostalgic works? Like, or what do you think are some challenges with rendering nostalgia in a way that can resonate with people effectively? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do have a, tr- a problem with the, the, the term nostalgia. You I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And a lot of people identify that. But I, the thing about nostalgia, it always implies that that whoever is kind of working with this, uh, with nostalgia, thinks that things were better before. And obviously, that's not necessarily, <laughs> necessarily yeah. true. Uh, no, I think that there's more sort of a the, the, the desire to stay sort of unfixed in time and to be able to sort of uh, to, 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 to bring things from, you know, films that I've loved or books that I've read uh, that have, that have impacted me or, or, um, you know, it's true. A lot of my work does tend to reference um, different periods of time. A lot of the graphic novels that I've done, whether it's uh, the Black Dahlia by James by James James Elroy or mm-hmm. uh, my adaptation of my grandmother's short story, The Lottery, um, and and many others, there is a sort of uh, a tendency to drift toward um, you know the the middle of the twentieth century, and a lot of those references are strong ones for me personally, but I think it's also because it's part of a sort of a collective unconscious in a lot of ways, something that, um, uh, an aesthetic that, that, that moves me and, and, uh, and, and inspires me. And I, I, um, it's not present in all of my paintings. Some of them are, 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 are current day, or sometimes there are references to different periods within the same work. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I like that. I like the Liberty, as an artist of being able to sort of um, uh, travel into different periods uh, through a, through a work of art and to reference different, different generation, generational issues or places or, or uh, aesthetics. So in in many ways, the, the nostalgia is almost an unconscious uh, element in my work um, that I, that I, that I like to work with, but it, it is never, um, a way for me to sort of escape into a, another period. It's it's not, right. it's not it's not at all the the motivation or the inspiration for for the the um, the chronological uh, liberty that I take with some of my work. Right. Yeah. No, I can see the distinction you're making for sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask is that there, there's a very specific sense of place in your works, and you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but going from your origins in Bennington, Vermont, and then to New York, to Rome, to Paris, um, could you talk a little bit more about your personal connections to each place and how how those connections inform the way that you actually depict the locations? Like, yeah. uh, Do you feel like you, you take a slightly different approach with each location when you're rendering them? I do, and 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 it's. I think for every artist who who um, who references the places they've lived, it's 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 a funny kind of chemistry that that comes into play because you you sort of grow up in a place or you you live in a in a in a city and you 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 experience those places visually over years or 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 whatever whatever length of time you're there, and and but beyond that, there's a sort of a. a um, a digestive period where you you transform those places into something that they really never were. Um, yeah. 
but they become sort of dreamscapes in a lot of ways. And you, you sort of continue to reinterpret them and invest into those places and those experiences, things that maybe come from elsewhere. Um, so I think that, uh, it, I, I do, I do have these, um, distant childhood memories of, of California landscapes when I would go to visit my father uh, in San Francisco and we travel and, and a lot of those landscapes come into play in my in 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 the in some of the paintings I've been doing likewise for for images of New York I think the city that I that I tend to paint when I when I show New York really is almost a city that doesn't exist anymore yeah uh, in any in any event it's no law it's no longer really palpable or or intact in any kind of geographical sense um it, it's a city that's a, that evolves constantly like like most cities um right. perhaps paris is less so is less caught up in this constant evolution than american cities uh paris tends to to, to remain more sort of visually identifiable and yet i i i notice that when i'm drawing paris it's always there's always something that's that's imagined about it, so it's something that's huh, right. that comes from somewhere else, or or or, or an, an experience that sort of is built upon something that that I might have that I might have seen or 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 experienced, but which which is brought to, into sort of a, a, an imagined realm where you know things take place that probably wouldn't, or things are combined or redistributed or or uh, sort of reorganized according to how. Um, how I how I can uh, sort of reconstruct them as a painter. Um, one thing that does sort of really build all of those reflections is the use of light and how each city or each place um, right. vibrates in 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 its own particular light, and, and how the wide open spaces of Los Angeles have really uh, nothing to do with the way cities like New York or Rome. Um, reflect and break up the light in such a way that uh, there's almost a theatrical use of lighting in in, in those cities yeah. um, similarly with with landscapes uh, uh like the 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 the, um, the 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 inland areas of california we have those rolling hills the way the light plays across them all all, all of those sort of light events uh become for me um a, a way of sort of setting setting the action that i that i play with in terms of those landscapes in such a way as uh, there's almost a a, a temporality as, as if as if we're, we're setting the place in a sense of time uh that that is really really particular and I, I i try and play with those those elements as much as possible yeah for sure and do you are are postcard like classic postcards kind of a graphic <laughs> inspiration because i, I kind of I don't know how to put my finger on it exactly, yeah. but there's a, there's like a, you know, almost an art deco kind of style glow uh, glow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That I kind of see like classic postcards. Like yeah. That, uh, I, as maybe that. Inspiration. Sure. I, I, um, it's funny. My, my, um, my grandmother, Shirley Jackson collected old postcards oh. and I, I would come across them from time to time in books and in, in, uh, in things that, that, that we, that we were were left uh, once she once she passed away, and it's true. Yeah, the, a lot of that sort of late afternoon glow that you see uh, rising from the horizon uh, that's that's present in a lot of my of my work. It's a, it's it's a very astute <laughs> astute remark there. Um, 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's funny how how all of those sort of references come into play at some point. You don't know where they come from, and yet um, suddenly, suddenly you're 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 faced with the you know you come across a postcard or or, or an old photograph or a painting that you love, and, and yeah. there it is. You, you suddenly realize that 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 that's been sort of taking shape in your unconscious for years. Yeah. Now, Shirley Jackson. Um, so she died in 1965. It looks she like, did. and yeah. so. Did you do you have any memories of her? Did you interact with her much, or do you, I do? You... She she would babysit for me. I was I was three when she passed away, but I do have some of those <laughs> really early early memories. Yeah. Of, uh, n- notably, uh, an image of her sitting on a stool in her kitchen, um, where I would obviously probably be playing nearby, and yeah. and uh, my father, uh, uh, aunts, and uncle would all say how, indeed, the last years of her life, she spent a lot of time in the kitchen, smoking, uh, <laughs> reading, yeah, you know, making meals for for the children, and uh, and and sitting on that stool. And and it's true that that sort of vignette um, is a uh, is a uh, kind of spot on in terms of uh, how how she would have spent parts of her days. Obviously, she she produced a, a huge a huge volume of work. Um, but she was also a, a full-time mother, and uh, she she sort of miraculously found a, a balance between her her creative uh, life and her her family life. Yeah, and it must have been very unique and personal to go and you know do an illustrated version of this famous short story of hers. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was a long time in. Uh, in the making, actually, uh, mm-hmm. not only because it's a, it was a kind of a complex endeavor, and I, I, I sort of wasn't sure about how to go about it. But initially, I, I thought of it as an illustrated version, so um, one that was sort of bring the, the the text would be sort of punctuated by by drawings. Mm-hmm. And when I started to do um, more graphic novels, and, and and notably an adaptation of Jim uh, of Jim Thompson's uh, Savage Night, and then um, James Elroy's uh, Black Dahlia, I realized that there was something that could be even more sort of, uh, let's see, how can I say this? Not faithful to the text, but at least bring out a lot of the dimensions of the text that were really uh, subtle and, and, and complex. It's a short, it's a very short, short story. It's only 11 pages. And yeah. yet I, I drew it out to a almost 140 pages <laughs> graphic novel. So I really, as she does, sort of Took my time with it, and and uh, yeah. and the thing about graphic novels is that you're it's much more intimate. You're really sort of you're there uh, as an author with with the characters, with the action, almost a witness to what's taking place. And that's that immediacy, uh, the the sort of the urgency with which uh, she seems to to almost breathlessly tell that that story. Um, it it really seemed best adapted to. The graphic novel format so i was really pleased uh when everyone uh was on board and excited about the project but uh yeah it was a it was a major it was a major event in my artistic uh life yeah because in a way i mean it, you know it's a way for you to co- almost communicate with her or collaborate i mean not i don't know if that's quite the right word but yeah. since you never really got you know you have these vague memories of her but you you never really got to know her but this is a very intimate way to to kind of um expand on her work collaborate with her and and 
over the decade, you know, across the spans of time. She was always very present in my childhood, uh, not mm-hmm. physically, obviously, but through uh, first, first of all, through the sort of the anecdotes that uh, people would tell about her and her husband, uh, Stephen Hyman, who was a, a literary critic for the New Yorker. Um, and, uh, and then, but then secondarily, obviously through her work, through her stories. So going to that sort of third step of, yeah, um, sort of, creating this homage to her uh through, yeah. through my own work uh yeah. was, it was emotionally very very a very intense experience yeah. and it was also as an artist and as someone who loves literature um you know i've come to see uh the adaptation of of existing literary works into graphic novel form as a form of literary analysis in a lot of ways because you really have to pick things apart almost mm-hmm. take the story apart and then build it back together as something as something different, as a visual um, experience for the for the reader, um, and in doing so, you really come across things that you may have read ten, fifteen, twenty times, uh, and in the process of making it a visual experience, there suddenly you realize, oh, this is this is actually very audacious. What she was doing, uh, <laughs> yeah. the story is almost even more shocking, I think, in visual form, not only because you're seeing what's taking place, but because a lot of little details, especially in the ending, which I don't want to spoil, but the, that that incredible ending of the short story, um, you know, the, the way the mechanics of how the villagers sort of turn against Tessie Hutchinson um, it is really, really uh, all the more alarming when you have to uh, translate it into images. Um, and, uh, there, there were so many complex, uh, challenges to, to getting that ending right and to setting it up, uh, correctly with the right rhythm. Um, yeah. I really, I really came to appreciate her work, uh, even more as an adapter than I ever had as either her grandson or as a, or as a, as a casual reader of her work. Yeah. And this got me to thinking like, in terms of like film adaptations of stories, um, you know, the, you know, the typical complaint of the book is always better than the movie. Um, and I think in the process of making film, you know, the filmmaker, uh, does not have as much of a direct dialogue with the, with the author, um, of the original text, um, in the same kind of intimate way, it sounds like that you do when you're, um, creating the, these visual narratives. Uh, yeah, and- each each case is different um, mm-hmm. depending on who you're working with, what their personality is like. Uh, obviously, if you're working with someone who's deceased, uh, it, it's a whole different experience because you you don't have that direct, immediate feedback from 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 the author themselves. And in cases like uh, like James Elroy, there was more of a dialogue. And with Guillaume Musot, the most recent project, right. there, there was um, there, there was more dialogue. Although his 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 desire was really to let me have a, a carte blanche as they say uh, yeah. uh and, and do what i wanted with his with his novel with with very little relative feedback from him um yeah and these are these are charcoal drawings that are up in the current yeah. show at yeah. uh, the blonde's gallery have you worked much in in charcoal before yeah that's actually the the, the medium i started working with okay. um initially back in uh Back in the day, uh, <laughs> this would be the late 80s, I started working with French publishers here. And um, 
whereas most of my uh, colleagues were working in ink, that sort of classic Franco-Belgian, uh, very sort of lovely, gra- graceful line, I sort of came in, came into the um, bande dessinée and, and graphic novel world with with this style that really sort of came out of nowhere that I I just liked because it allowed me to both find a very narrative form of uh, of drawing um, where you you could work with all of the sort of the subtleties of charcoal the 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 um, the, the the flu what is it the the, the sort of the um, the, the lack of precision uh, that you can that you can where you can sort of more suggest things than describe them. Um, I've always sort of liked that about about charcoal, um, and it's gone through periods where they've been more or less uh, more or less abstract. Um, uh, I also worked with pastel, which was the sort of the color, the closest color equivalent I could find to that mm-hmm. to that lack of detail that I could use to suggest things uh whether it be light or action or or or, or emotions uh I, i've always been very comfortable in that zone uh that charcoal and pastel give you where you can you can really um develop volume and, and depth and, and light in a way that's very suggestive and 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 not not that very hyper precise technique that t- that you see a lot in graphic novel work um yeah, so yeah. It, it's a technique that 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 again it allowed me to build on a lot of the references that I that I'd uh, learned um, in my, during my education, whether it be references to painting or to film noir or or, or other forms of uh, of create creative um, elements that I'd always admired. So it just felt right, and I and I uh, I built a style around that. It's funny the word style. Uh, <laughs> Sort of one that never so kind of kind of uh, catches you by surprise. After a couple of years, you just kind of do what you like, and suddenly people uh, identify it as a style. <laughs> How does you develop your style? Yeah, it is. That's the yeah. question that comes to you. You really, it's almost as it's a it's a sort of a a slow process of of sedimentation almost <laughs> of experiences where you know one drawing leads to another. Before you know it, you actually have certain certain qualities that that are successful and others that that you kind of left leave by the wayside and i i kind of would define style as the 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 uh, aggregate of the what you what you do well and what you really don't do well it's sort of a, as the as the strength and weaknesses and all that kind of comes together into something that becomes very personal and which is called style but it was in my case anyway it was never a real conscious uh a conscious exercise to to develop a style yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> the way that you were just describing kind of the uh, fluidity of working in charcoal um, in the sense of it's more of a sketched out, there's more kind of room for interpretation um, kind of ties into, I wanted to, I just wanted to ask you about your father who was a jazz musician, right? Yeah. And I read that you traveled with him. Does that mean touring with him? Like, did you go to gigs? Oh, you know what? Probably a little bit. I think he, I remember. I remember as a ch- as a really young child, um, he'd bring me to his gigs in, in different clubs. So you know, going to sleep on <laughs> on uncomfortable uh, chairs, listening to to uh, to Dixieland and to, to other kinds of jazz that he would play. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I I I didn't. It wasn't like it was a worldwide tour. Although <laughs> the exception is that. Um, 
my mother was pregnant with me when um, the, the, they were both very young and they traveled to Paris. And uh, so I, in, in a sort of unusual sort of prenatal form, I did travel with, with them <laughs> to Paris in 19, it would have been 19, early 1962. Uh, and they they played in some of the uh, the sort of the, the jazz basements in Paris that had become mythical. Um, uh, and, uh, and so probably absorbed it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's wonderful non-memories for me, (laughs) but I I love, I love to imagine that I I probably picked up some of those, some of those, uh, sort of Latin quarter vibes through osmosis. What, what did he play? What, what did he play? Trumpet. Okay. Cornet actually to be, to be specific. Okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. He, and he started very young with, uh, Rex Stewart, who was uh, uh, one of the trumpet trumpet players from the Duke Ellington Orchestra, who taught him how to play, and he, he picked up a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Rex Stewart's uh, uh, stylistic mannerisms as a, as a musician, but other you know other other uh, other trumpet players as well. And he he he's been playing for since then. He continues to play today. So it's a it's a, it's been a lifelong love of his. Yeah, what's his first name? Lawrence. Lawrence. All right. Yeah, I was um, trying to look him up. Yeah, there's a famous uh, Hyman piano player, but it's it's Lawrence. Hyman. Yeah, I just found Dick Hyman. <laughs> yeah, Dick Hyman, exactly. Yeah, he's never. He's. It's always been a semi-professional uh, activity for him. He's played a lot in in San Francisco and around the different clubs. But yeah, um, it, it, it's really a um, more 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 of out of love uh his, his actual his professional life was more taken up initially with photography and journalism and then as a publisher so all of those yeah. things kind of leave their their imprint on on me as his son for sure well so in this show and also the last one at philippe Lebon, you have works from your series crash yeah so these these are kind of these juxtapositions of women and car wrecks um and so the the women generally don't seem to be aware of the wreckage in the images um the mood is actually kind of peaceful like oddly peaceful um so just could you talk a little bit about what your aims are with these works like what are you trying to convey what was their inspiration i can i you know i can i can try it's one of those things that's always (laughs) sort of a um sort of very complex because a lot of these images sort of gel in a almost um unconscious way um and i i tend to work with themes uh sort of crash sort of really came spontaneously as as a as a, an interesting way to to work simultaneously simultaneously with this sense of sort of sudden dramatic change uh, uh that, that that the theme of a crash represents on an abstract level and yet these characters who do seem to have sort of risen above, I, I almost see them as survivors. There is something very sort of serene about, about them um, and, and resilient. And I think that's what I like to see them as, is not at all traumatizing or um, the, the sort of these triggering images of, of car accidents. I like to see the car accident as more of an allegorical element um, that allows us to focalize on in a sort of a, an abstract way, a lot of the the sudden dramatic change that we're living through now, uh, yeah. whether environmental or cultural or, or political, um, and 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 yet 
um, the fact that these these characters, women often, not only, but often, um, seem to rise above and and to be sort of have, have, seem to have walked away intact uh, and and uh, and and resilient for me is a is, you know in the end a very uplifting way of seeing our our ability to move beyond and to remain human uh, and and you know and perfectly able to live our lives despite a lot of what we're we're, we're sort of experiencing you know that that is my uh, my take on it and i guess what i don't like about talking too much about my opinions i also like the way people interpret them themselves and i think the one as an artist when i sort of try and nail down a, a meaning to a painting i feel like i've sort of short-circuited that that critical uh chemistry that has to take place in the mind of anyone who sort of comes into contact with these paintings and okay. interprets them in their own way and i and i i kind of don't like to i don't like to fiddle with that <laughs> i like yeah. i like i like it when people come to me and give their interpretation of the image that just looked at and it hasn't really nothing to do with anything i i, I thought of initially right. and yet that's it you know that the, they're what what they take away from that experience is what really matters, and and I, I, I whether it be in graphic novels or in some of my previous uh, work as as an illustrator or or now as a painter, um, I, I love the fact that when you create an image, it's sort of you sort of free it free it of any entanglement and let it off into into yeah. the uh, ecosphere where it then interacts with other people and what comes back is sometimes very different than what you 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 initially um thought that painting might mean to you and i i love i, I love that uh i i love getting that feedback uh at the end of that long loop uh, uh of interpretation um from the people that see my work so again i've, yeah. I've sort of given you my my feelings about what those paintings mean but i i really uh respect and, and admire a lot of the different uh, um, tales that, that come that come back from from people who look at those works well yeah i can imagine you get all kinds of interpretations with those i mean for me because uh, a lot of the work has the, the kind of noirish look and yeah. a lot of the um you know you said that uh it's it, there are some men in these as well with the, with the crash cars okay I think so far I've only seen women and because they kind of have like this noirish look to them, you know, yeah. and they're, they're, they're sort of detached from what's from the wreckage right. or so I was looking at it almost like um, they were somehow responsible for the wreckage, but as part of some, you know, deeper conspiracy and some more narrative, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that works. I mean, yeah. I, it, it's a, uh... it's, it, it really can be, I mean, I, I like sort of finding that sweet spot between, Thing, uh, images that are, I mean, if you've seen my paintings, like they're, they're femme like, fatales, oh, is kind of what I was getting at. I'm sorry, yeah. like they're femme fatales, you know, like the, yeah, yeah. Uh, why not? I mean, there's very, they're clearly strong, strong women, they're strong, they're, they're strong presences, and I, you don't feel that they've been damaged in any way by what they just lived. It doesn't look like they went through the crash at all. That's what I'm yeah, exactly. Uh, and and inspired uh, to make it happen, I don't know, but they because no, I, I don't see it that way. I don't see any sort of cause and effect relationship between, <laughs> okay. between them. I, I do, I do tend to sort of seek out that sweet spot between almost like a in, in, in David Lynch films that. Uh, uh, mixture yeah. of um, 
the, sort of the beauty of the image, something that's very sort of disquieting or, or, or troubling about it. And yet there is a, I don't know if erotic quality, but there's something, there's something seductive about, about the image as well. And, uh, a lot of people make reference to the, uh, the Cronenberg film Crash, or I know Andy right. Warhol also worked <laughs> with the theme quite a bit. There's an odd, an odd mixture of things that come into play with those images that I have a really hard time putting my finger on. And yet the way I work, I, I, I tend to, I tend to do a lot of sketching and draw and, and, preparatory drawings and i sort of mix it up a lot and i try and see what works and when you come to an image that works i don't know there's sort of a, a almost an electric shock that takes place and you, you realize that this it's almost like the image opens a door into a, a succession of ideas that you don't fully control right and but the the um the image itself is sort of that door, that doorway that, that that can be opened or shut, um, depending on who, who's going to be looking at it. And that's when you know you really have a composition that that works and that you want to move forward um to to make it a painting. And um, you know, so some 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 work differently, some are more, I would say, more set on a on a narration or imply a narration, and some of them are sort of more abstract and strange. Um yeah. But when this sketch comes together and sort of gels, I I I I really kind of uh, I, I love that I love that moment when things seem to you know to signal that we're ready to move to the second phase and to and to start working up uh, the 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 image as a painting uh, in its final form. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to mention to our listeners that for each one of these podcast episodes, I put up on a page on the interlocutor website. So I will link to images um, currently that are up on the the Philippe Laban page for this show and also for the previous show that you did there uh, and to your website. So people can just take a look at these works as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. The other thing I wanted to touch on, um, you did the uh, a Louis Vuitton travel book featuring Rome. Yeah. yeah. So how, how did that come about? Um. Let's see. I, I I'd worked previously with one of the art directors at Louis Vuitton on, on projects many years ago, and we stayed in touch. And when the collection of their travel books, which um, if you, if your readers or your your listeners don't know, uh, it, Louis Vuitton will will um, send an artist uh, to a city or to a country for uh, several several days or several weeks. To sort of explore, to sketch, to to bring back to their studio, uh, in some cases, the influences that will then become a a, a series of a hundred or one hundred twenty drawings. Um, the artist is generally very free to sort of interpret the place as as they like. There's very few guidelines or or or, uh, or um, requirements uh, in terms of what needs to be shown. But there there's a you know, a, a very uh, uh, again, a, the desire to really let the, the the artist express her or himself um, through this this set of drawings that will then become a book um, about the place. So I was contacted. Um, we'd sort of been bantering about you know between ourselves about how how we could work together. What what would be uh, the right project to to work on with um, uh, Frédéric Bartholotti, who is the art director, and um, 
he suggested Rome, which initially, you know, I, I sort of thought was too close to where I was living in Paris. And um, I, I thought it was a shame. I've sort of had my eyes on Tahiti. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, you had your, your eyes on what? I'm sorry. On Tahiti. On Tahiti. Well, oh, right. Some beautiful tropical island with, with beaches. But as as Rome kind of came into focus, I realized, uh, and purely after my first um, my first visit there, that it was a, a completely different city with a different rhythm, a different different vibe to it, um, and that aesthetically, I, I had the impression that I sort of opened up my my box of pastels and, and rediscovered this this palette that I, I really love. So I, I kind of left at the at the at the chance when he when he um, when he made this when he made the offer, and um, they yeah they they sent me there for for three weeks. My wife and I went, and. Um, and I came back with so much material. Uh, I just fell in love with the place. It was a, a really a, a, an incredible experience. Uh, and in the end, despite all of the sort of the the architectural wealth of a city like Rome and the the and the the light and the ambiance, I really I, I'd almost want to call it the uh, the Romans. I mean, it's it's really a book about the people who live there. Yeah. And, and the people that inhabit or who visit it, or, or in in any case, who give it life and who who sort of walk the streets and eat the restaurants and 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 look at the old buildings, and that almost became the focal point of of the uh, of the book, almost like almost like a filter, uh, the eyes of all those people through which we then see the city is is uh, is is what the book actually turned out to be about. So great experience. I, I loved it. Yeah, this is a, a fantastic series in general. I'm looking at their their website for it right now. Yeah, they have um, some really outstanding. Um, yeah, and a lot of like unexpected locations. There's Mars. Yeah, <laughs> by Francis, Francis Caton, a wonderful and Belgian artist. Yeah. Also, the Arctic is in here as well. Yeah, that was one of their first books, which I think with that, they really showed people that they were not going to do <laughs> purely decorative books. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's also Route 66. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Incredible book. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think, I mean, I, I sort of admire it. Obviously, Louis Vuitton is a huge, a huge powerhouse in terms of um, their, their, uh, you know, their, their, their market share <laughs> in the luxury market. And yeah, <laughs> to do something like this, which is not necessarily a, uh, you know, it's 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 not a it's not a big marketing ploy. It's really a way for them to, uh, I don't know, to develop the, the 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 travel theme that has always been central to their to their brand, and to, and to, to bring in what has been another side to their activity, the the contemporary artists that they work with, and and to sort of bring those together in uh, in, in the form of a series of books. I thought was quite. Uh, quite audacious and and um and uh, you know yeah has, has, has created some wonderful books oh for sure yeah all right so secret lives is up at philippe le bon in chelsea in new york city yeah. until december 23rd and again as i mentioned i'll put in links to your work into the uh the show uh, the, can i say something quickly about oh, sure <laughs> Sure. You know, Philippe, he launched his gallery, as you said, about a little more than two and a half years ago. And it's really one of the only ones that I know of in the United States that has really built its its uh, its identity around um, graphic novels and comic mm-hmm. art. And I think he's, uh, he's become really an important part of my 
my career, but I, I, uh, I really, I really encourage people to have a look. It's, it's quite a unique and interesting gallery. It really is, and it stands out, especially in Chelsea. Uh, I think with the with the work, there's really I don't of what I know of in general in that part of you know the city in Chelsea with those galleries. That's not the typical kind of work that's shown. No, it is so. Um, and it seems like it's really thriving. And I want to mention that I interviewed him in for a podcast episode. Yeah, he like, mentioned that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I'll link to that also on the page because he, he was a fascinating interview. He has a great background. He, he, deep love of comic art and was a collector for years. And it goes way back to his childhood. And, um, and now he has the opportunity to open up this gallery and professionally show it. And, yeah. and he's very excited about it. He's very engaging in he a way that's different than a lot of discovered- galleries. He's discovered a real talent, I think, uh, <clears throat> amongst his other talents. Uh, in fact, running a gallery is a lot more than hanging pictures. It, it's uh, oh, it, yeah. we're learning to work with artists to listen to their their, um, their sort of their desires and their 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 anguish, their various anguishes, and and, and uh, <laughs> the things that they that that they get stuck on. And, and he's very good at, I think finding what each and every artist that he works with can bring to the gallery and to the New York public. I think it's quite a, quite an interesting talent that he's developed. Uh, I, I know that in my case, um, it, it's allowed me to do some of the, some of my best work. And I think that's, I think a lot of that has to do with him. Yeah, no, he's a unique individual. And one thing that um, really jumped out at me when I met him is that he as a gallerist, he almost takes like a shopkeeper approach. And we talked about this in the interview that I did with him um, in a way that if you go into his gallery, he's often, he's often there yeah. um, and he'll talk to you. He'll come out and be like, you know, welcome. And, you know, and he'll, yeah, he clearly he, loves what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. That, but it, and, that, it, and that matters. I mean, it really makes a difference. It, it, well, it, it, it's a level of personalization that you don't get in a lot of galleries, you know? Um, well, the, the gallerist is actually there and will engage with you. And, 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 uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a unique vibe oh, and great. If work. he hears this, if he hears this, he's going to think we're flattering him. So we better stop. But, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Flattered him enough. That's but funny. it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> well, it was great talking with you, Miles. Yeah. It was very nice to talk to you, Tyler. Thank you. And also thanks a lot to everyone out there listening. You can find us online at interlocutorinterviews.com. Instagram at interlocutor.interviews, plus visit our YouTube channel. And if you're a fan of our arts coverage, you can sign up to be a subscriber or donate via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on our site, and I'll be back soon with another Interlocutor Interviews podcast episode. Mm-hmm.